We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Michael Fahey. Great to be back, Gavin. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Always great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing Agriculture Minister Chen Jong resigning as the government's egg import programme comes under yet further scrutiny. Some local election news involving KMT presidential candidate Terry Guo, the independent candidate, and some of the latest polls, as well as Taiwan and the US agreeing to increase cybersecurity collaboration at a time amid concerns about cybersecurity risks ahead of January's election. But we'll begin with it being that time of the year once again when Taiwan's allies, or some of them anyway, voice their support for the island's inclusion in the United Nations. The leaders of Palau, Guatemala, Paraguay, the Marshall Islands and Isawanti this week all took to the podium at the general debate of the 78th General Assembly in New York to call for Taiwan's inclusion in the UN system. Palau's president, Surangal Whips, told member states that Taiwan is being unjustly excluded from the UN system and the organisation should allow Taiwan to participate in crucially important agencies because the country has so much to offer. Guatemala's outgoing president, Alejandro Giamate said the UN should recognise the importance of inclusivity and universality and exhaust all measures necessary to guarantee international peace and security in the Taiwan Strait. Paraguay's newly elected president, Santiago Pena, expressed his government's support for Taiwan, describing the island as an integral part of the UN system. Marshall Islands president, David Kabuya, accused the United Nations of wrongful misinterpretation of Resolution 2758 and using it to exclude Taiwan from UN engagement. He also called on member states to have the courage to recognise the reality of the present situation and relegate the outdated dogma surrounding Taiwan to the vaults of history. And Isawanti's King Mswati cited the UN's sustainable development goals as being one of the reasons Taiwan should be allowed representation, saying Taiwan's inclusion is a major part of the implementation of said goals. Meanwhile, the President of the Czech Republic, Petra Pevel, used his time on the podium in New York to criticise China for its military actions in the Taiwan Strait, saying that they have raised tensions and disputes or contentious issues must be solved peacefully. Now, of course, Taiwan's representative office in New York this week and next week is holding several promotional events near the UN headquarters and a delegation of lawmakers is also in the city to advocate for Taiwan's inclusion in, well, the United Nations. So, Michael, it's that time of the year again where these people take to the podium and say basically what they said last year, just with a little bit of a different twist. Exactly. What we're seeing here is the fruits of Taiwan's official diplomatic policy and what us taxpayers are paying for. Uh, Every year, Taiwan gets its diplomatic allies to speak up for it. And that's a reason or the main reason that many people who support Taiwan's uh, diplomatic efforts think that it's money well spent. Uh, I often wonder... Uh, I certainly understand that people in Taiwan are resentful of the fact that they're excluded from the United Nations. It just doesn't feel good. And there has been a tremendous cost to Taiwan from being excluded from all these agencies because it makes it more difficult for Taiwan to interact with Taiwan's government officials, to interact with other officials and, you know, keep Taiwan international. Uh, But one does wonder how many people in Taiwan actually respect the United Nations as an institution and really want to join it for whatever benefits joining it uh, actually uh, confers. I, I will say that this year's uh, 
General Assembly um, program was very well organized and uh, some new points were made. Taiwan is really emphasizing uh, China's misin- gross misinterpretation of that uh, UN resolution. What, what number was it, Gavin? 2758. 2758. Everyone in Taiwan should be aware that that resolution, which recognized the People's Republic of China as the UN member for China, says nothing about Taiwan and merely says that it ejected the representatives of Chiang Kai-shek. There's nothing in one China about it, uh, despite China's constant... Uh, I mean, frankly, big lies, misinformation that it does uh, legitimize the one China policy. Um, and there, there were some other things. Eswat, we, President Tsai just went to Eswatini, and Eswatini uh, served up some good lines about how uh, Taiwan is necessary for the UN to meet its uh, the sustainable development goals and that kind of thing. And it was encouraging to see the Czech Republic, which is not a diplomatic ally, more or less in support of Taiwan as well. So all things said, I think for if Taiwan's strategy is to join the United Nations, and that's a worthy, if that's a worthy objective, I think they did a good job this time. Yeah, I think that was an excellent summary. I can add a few things to that. What's interesting is that Taiwan's goals are actually quite limited. They're not, and they're, a clarification had to be issued over a an Australian media report which said that Taiwan was trying to join the United Nations under the name Taiwan, which is not actually the case. All Taiwan is actually campaigning for is observer status or participation in specialized um, institutions within the UN framework, such as the the World Health Organization. And Donovan, just if I can shoot in, there are other organizations and non-fully sovereign states, such as the Palestinian Authority, that do have this status. This is is not a wild uh, request. So, you know, so it's not even that these are terribly ambitious goals. It's not like during the the Chen administration when Taiwan was actually actively applying to be readmitted as a full member. And another thing I can add uh, to Michael's description is in, I think it was 2007, 2008, uh, then UN uh, General Secretary um, Ban Ki-moon had come out and specifically said that 2758, uh, under 2758, the UN's interpretation was that because China claimed Taiwan, that therefore Taiwan had to be excluded because China, the People's Republic of China was the sole representative of China. The United States objected, and uh, Ben had to retract that statement um, under serious, serious threat. I mean, the United States has threatened to pull out a lot of money, and, you know, the, the U.S. Was, was furious about that. So, again, it's, you know, the, the U.N. now is sort of unofficially acting as if Ban Ki-moon's statement were correct, but officially is t- taking the stance that, you know, that the United States and other countries have taken that Taiwan's sovereignty um, is undetermined. And of course, Michael, last week, late last week, the UN Deputy Secretary General said that every person matters, whether it's Taiwan or otherwise. And I think it's really important for member states to find a solution to that, which hints that maybe there are some splits within the UN hierarchy on the Taiwan matter. Well, I I have to concede that although for many years Taiwan's efforts to join the United Nations um, 
sort of uh, provoked a roll of the eyes for me. It seems so uh, like such a quixotic uh, uh, enterprise, but it is starting to have some effect. That comment by the UN official was very unusual, and the. Uh, you, you're seeing journalists at the United Nations, you know, asking whether or not China is running the United Nations. And, and there's beginning to be more attention to the issue and disquiet over exactly what China's role is there, which, of course, is good for Taiwan. And, and Representative Ambassador Xiao also uh, sort of dovetailed with that with her comments about how, you know, the United Nations is supposed to be run by the peoples of the United Nations, not necessarily, uh, you know, the particular governments and that kind of thing. I think she was responding to that U.N. official's comment. I think I can add something to that as well. I mean, I've been supportive of these efforts for a long time because what they do is they highlight the absurdity of Taiwan's political situation. And otherwise, people wouldn't be reminded of it and wouldn't think about it. And especially now that the People's Republic has become so belligerent on the world stage, this has become even easier to highlight you know, Taiwan's unusual and kind of almost illegal treatment by by the world. So I do think that, you know, this is a, it's it's been an, a a very good exercise uh for publicity for Taiwan and to build sympathy for Taiwan. And that has knock-on effects because what's happening is more and more countries particularly, for example, but not exclusively limited to Eastern Europe and the United States um are coming around more and more to treating Taiwan as if it is a de facto state in more and more ways and in, in ways that it didn't previously for fear of offending China. So, in a, you know, I do think that these efforts to participate in UN organizations are measured in that the government is not trying to become a full mem- member, but they do a very, very good job of creating and building sympathy and awareness uh, for Taiwan. But, Michael, this year, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs seems to be rather subdued about the whole thing. Usually we have the flags out, the big trumpets being blown, the big talk about we're going to join, we're doing this, but nothing this year. It's better to manage expectations. Uh, Just work hard and and get the message out to the international community, which, you know, and responding to Donovan, I I think in the past... uh, I just felt that it was it was kind of hopeless because nobody seemed to be paying attention. But Taiwan has continued working away at this, and circumstances and have have changed, and it really is getting a little bit more attention now. Moving on now, and Premier Chen Jianren finally accepted the resignation of Agriculture Minister Chen Chi Jong on Tuesday. That after reports said that he tendered his resignation on Sunday due to the ongoing controversy over the government's egg importation programme. Now, acceptance of his resignation came days after the Agriculture Minister admitted that at least 54 million of the 145 million eggs imported by the government from between March and July were sent to be destroyed due to their expiration. Now, there's also been accusations of financial waste there. And although citing controversy surrounding the egg import programme as the reason he chose to step down, the 
Former Agriculture Minister is continuing to claim that the controversy was caused not by the programme itself, but in the way it's been characterised by critics. And while apologising to the public, he also said that the turmoil was caused by critics, who he said tried to smear the policy. Now, the controversy didn't go away after Chen went away, as local governments in Taipei, or in rather New Taipei rather, and Taichung, announced the opening of investigations into food processing plants that received eggs from the import programme. And prosecutors in Taipei, New Taipei, Taoyuan, Taichung and Kaohsiung have also opened investigations into the matter. So Michael, we talked about this last week a bit about the egg situation, but it seems to have, obviously they thought it would go away, the people in the government, but Chen stepped down, but it hasn't gone away, it seems to be getting worse. It's highly politicised, is the basic way that it must be understood. Uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, food safety is a very potent issue and has been for years. And so uh, the KMT has tried to mobilize it and, and criticize the program on multiple fronts and has found some things that uh, aren't, aren't quite right. Uh, and they've managed to get the Minister of Agriculture to uh, step down at kind of a key time coming up to the election where he could be out there, you know, effectively campaigning for Lai Qingde. So it, it may have some benefits for the KMT. Uh, on the other hand, the green side is saying that, oh, this is exactly like what happened to Chen Shizhong, the uh, minister of health during uh, the, the epidemic, because, you know, Taiwan had a problem. It, it didn't have eggs. Consumers were complaining. Uh, it was a big deal, as you'll remember, a few months ago, and the government solved the problem by importing eggs. And now you have all these uh, critics who are out there, uh, uh, who are, um, you know, uh, getting in the way of the pro a good program that worked. Um, probably the big winner from this is Koenja, uh, because this plays right into his main uh political agenda, which is moving past uh, blue and green fighting over issues like this. This is an issue that is wonderfully described in Mandarin as Jian Dao Qiang, uh, picking up a gun. So you find a gun on the ground and you pick it up, and I think the implication is that you start randomly shooting it around. And people are tired of politics being run this way. And that's what Koenja is promising to change. So I think all of the major candidates are getting something out of this. Of course, Michael Kerr this week did tell reporters that nothing about the incident makes sense. Uh, it doesn't make all that much sense. I think it's really crucial to understand that... Uh, as far as I've been able to figure out, there are no expired eggs out there on the market, and the eggs that are out there have been withdrawn and are being destroyed. But there are questions. There was mislabeling of expiration dates, and which potentially could have put eggs out there if people hadn't been paying attention and, and you know called public attention to it. And uh, there are some questions about why one of the companies that got the contract to import the eggs was able to get the contract since it only had about uh, 500,000 NT or 16,000 US dollars in, in capital, which doesn't necessarily preclude a company to do it. The shareholders can loan money. Uh, they, it makes sense that, that somebody who is doing a one-off project sets up a company particularly for it. But it, it, there are questions about it, and government procurement in Taiwan, as in all countries, is is an area where things go wrong and public money gets gets wasted. So, 
the attention to the issue might seem disproportionate, and Koenja, as usual, is dismissing it as it doesn't make any sense. It does make some sense, but uh, you know, in in the end, I think that by the time the election comes around, everyone will have forgotten about this. And Donovan, of course, you're in Taichung, and your mayor likely won't have forgotten about this. <laughs> no. Here in Taichung, the mayor um, launched, uh, got the food safety officials to launch an investigation of all egg processing facilities uh, here in, in the mayor's jurisdiction. And at one factory, this was actually not involving imported eggs. It was involving a, a washing and packaging, uh, a plant involved in washing and pack- packaging uh, eggs here in Taichung for, from domestic supplies. And uh, the investigators found that they had been stamping the dates uh, on the eggs as the day after. And so the press, of course, dubbed them as future eggs. Um, so, of course, that company is now facing fines for that. So, the, you know, the scandal has now gone from the imported eggs to domestic eggs here in Taichung. And I believe in other jurisdictions as well around uh, Taiwan, they're starting to find more irregularities. One one thing that I think that uh, not all listeners might be aware of uh, is that is the division of labor between the central government and the local county and city governments. The central government is responsible for things like you know planning this policy and uh, you know handing out the contracts and things like this, but. Food safety, like many, many things, is under the jurisdiction of cities like Taichung, and they have the power to investigate. And it can be a very powerful tool if you control the government of the locality. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. All the blue... you know, primarily the blue cities and counties are investigating this, and of course they're finding things that are wrong. And that's probably good for protecting the public because salmonella poisoning, which can come from eggs, and especially because people in Taiwan are allowed to eat raw eggs in restaurants, which I personally love, uh, is is a major public health issue. And it's good that we're finding these things out. Yeah, I mean, to get back to sort of the original topic, I really do think that some of these questions that have been raised um, by the opposition parties are worth are definitely worth examining. Um, now, there's so far nothing has come come to light which is illegal, and uh, but the specifically the company that everyone is focused on is this company called Ultra Source. And this company was founded in September, so it wasn't set up specifically for the egg import program, because that only started in, I believe it was February, if memory serves, is when they started to plan it. Um, and this company, it, it seems to be, a, it was one person, it was founded with 500,000 NT, so it was a totally new company. Now, by the time the, 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 the you know, the, the plans had been laid for eggs, to, to, to be imported, uh, this company was was marked as temporarily closed, and then managed to win the contract when the company was not even legally operating, and then only became operational again the day after. Now, I'd like to stress that again, nothing is necessarily illegal here. Um, it could be that there is corruption going on. It could also be incompetence. But this is not a 
you know, this is not a trusted or regular company that has been involved in food importation. And that's important because food importation is a complicated process. I mean, there's a lot that you have to go through involving storage and customs procedures, and so there's a lot that goes into it. Now, there's nothing that says that this company failed to achieve all of these things, which I should also stress. But it, it is, you know, this is a very, very weird-looking you know, situation. It really does comes across that there's either corruption going on or there's some incompetence or something weird is going on about this. Exactly. So I do think that the opposition is right to look into this. Now, as far as the huge amount, uh, the 54 million eggs that were destroyed after in storage, the opposition claims that's a massive waste of money. Now, the count, you know, the you know, Ch- uh, Minister Chen defended it, saying that a lot of these were not put on the, onto the market because what they were trying to do with the eggs, the imported eggs, was they wanted to make sure that prices were maintained high enough to support domestic producers, but there was a sh- a shortfall um, in between domestic production and a uh, demand. And so they wanted to make, and so what was happening is, and the reason why they started to import eggs was because prices were spiking uh, significantly at the beginning of the year. So they wanted to bring in the imported eggs to balance between the prices rising too high and, um, but keeping prices high enough so that uh, domestic producers were still getting paid reasonably well. So arguments could be made either way that either this was very wasteful or that the government was being very prudent um, in making sure that this balance was being kept. I would just add on the company that one of the criteria for getting the contract was they were supposed to have, you know, a record of a certain number of years of being involved in the import export business. Uh, Defenders of the company have said that the person behind it is a very experienced person in the egg industry and, and has done these kinds of things before. Uh, but it is it is pretty questionable. And as a result, I think that listeners can also draw another lesson from this. Notice that uh, Chen Jijong has now been is now the subject of a complaint in a criminal investigation over a very interesting crime in ta- Taiwan, which is called Tulizui, which is the offense of conferring benefits on a private entity. Public officials get prosecuted for this crime all the time. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why they're so cautious in doing anything to help anybody, because they know that they're a target for prosecution. So if you're wondering why the government sometimes seems to be so conservative, this is a textbook case. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and looking at some local election news. Well, KMT presidential candidate Ho Yoe has been busy in America visiting New York, Washington, D.C. and San Francisco as he's seeking to shore up his presidential credentials stateside. Ho began his trip in New York where he was interviewed by the New York Times and Bloomberg News before heading to Washington, D.C., which was basically the main focus of his entire trip. Now, Ho began his visit to the U.S. Capitol attending a gathering of some 400 Taiwanese and ethnic Chinese expats 
States, at which he said that his main goal is to bring peace to Taiwan, which has been at the risk of war with China since the DPP came to power in 2016. Ho then visited the Brookings Institution, where he unveiled his three Ds strategy to build a cross-strait peace, saying the policy of deterrence, dialogue and de-escalation is based on the premise of Taiwan needing to be prepared for war, while also using its strength to safeguard peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Now, according to the KMT presidential candidate, he's advocating for the re-establishment of dialogue with China based on the ROC constitution and the act governing relations between the people of the Taiwan area and the mainland area. And he says he's also seeking to ensure that any such cross-strait dialogue will be based on the principles of equality, goodwill and dignity, saying he believes it's possible to gradually decrease hostilities and reduce the risk of conflict in the Taiwan Strait. He then held talks with American Institute in Taiwan chairwoman Laura Rosenberger. He was accompanied to those talks by KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah, the party's envoy to the United States, Alexander Huang, as well as lawmakers Johnny Jung and Ui Ding. Now, that meeting lasted for about an hour, and Ho refused to tell reporters waiting outside of AIT's DC headquarters what topics he talked about or whether the Biden administration sent any officials to participate in said meeting. He then went on to meet, well, according to the KMT, he met 16 American lawmakers during what the KMT says was a six and a half hour stop on Capitol Hill. He then flew to San Francisco, where he went to Silicon Valley, where speaking at a forum in Foster City, he said under his leadership, Taiwan would emulate the United States' friend-shoring policy to reduce reliance on China-based production. Now, if you're interested, he actually arrived back in Taiwan at around four o'clock this morning, Michael. I think that Ho's trip to the United States went quite well for him. Uh, He ended it with a great photo op with a picture of him and a 26-year-old man that he rescued as a baby from the South African embassy hostage siege. Uh, I I do have to note that the real hero in that case was Frank Shia, who was the only one who actually put his own life in danger. Uh, The the siege was over by the time that baby was taken out, but uh, it was still a great picture for Ho and reminded everybody of his, his, his record as a crime fighter. Uh, The thing that was interesting is that at, I believe, the beginning of the year, Ho made a veiled but very obvious reference to everyone in Taiwan where he said that Taiwan should not be the pawn of anyone. And that, of course, means that the United uh, Taiwan should not be a pawn of the United States. But during his mission to the U.S. this time, he signed on and endorsed everything the United States wants. He's going to increase defense spending to 3%. He's in favor of asymmetrical weapons. Uh, he's down with Taiwan's friendshoring, uh, with the U.S.'s friendshoring policy, including semiconductors. Uh, basically, the U.S. has got to be real happy with uh, everything that he told them there. Another thing that was very interesting was the prominent role that Andrew Shah, the KMT official, played there, because Andrew Shah is apparently the KMT's main envoy to China. So uh, he was there in the U.S., uh, presumably modulating and keeping an eye on Ho's message there. Yeah, there's so much to say about this. Um I want to start with quoting something. Now, he wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs magazine, and he talked about how he does advocate for the 1992 consensus, which, but the KMT version of that, which is, of course, uh, there is one China, 
each side with its own interpretation. And of course, China has only accepted that there, there is one China, i.e. the one China principle alone. And now here's a quote that he put into the uh, article that he wrote, and it just really struck me. He said, I advocate for both sides to carry out official interactions based on a model of mutual non-recognition of sovereignty and mutual non-denial of jurisdiction. I thought that was a really striking statement. Now, what I find really interesting about is his his stances in the United States. Now, we need to keep in mind that uh, a lot of the comments that Andrew Xia and um, Eric Ju, uh, the KMT chair, when they're speaking to American audiences and when they're speaking to Chinese audiences, they tend to say different things. And so we need, need to keep that in mind. Now, I don't really know too much about, with, about Ho because he hasn't said very much. But as Michael pointed out, he did on New Year's, uh, New Year's Day talk about not being a pawn and balancing between both sides. Um, now, uh, but what's, what I find very interesting is previously he had said that he wanted to go back to continuing on from my, the Maingzhou era of relations with China. However, he now seems to be striking a stance which is somewhere between the KMT of the 90s, which is strong on national defense and protecting against China, because back in the day the KMT used to hate the communists so they, and feared them, and of course were very, very strong on a strong military. Um, but under Maingzhou, defense spending famously shriveled under under 2% of GDP. So it looks like he's trying to take a lot of the opening to China from Maingzhou while at the same time going back to an earlier KMT, which is stronger on defense. So I think that's kind of an interesting balance he's trying to pick between different eras of the KMT. Donovan, do you think this is going to appeal to KMT, all KMT supporters, or is there going to be disquiet among some of the hardline blues? I think there might be. I mean, there's a certain segment of the KMT, he's had trouble getting uh, over 70% support um, in most polls. There's one exception I can think of that had him over 70%, but... In most polls, it's it's seventy percent or less of self-described KMT or Pan Blue supporters are are backing uh, Ho, which is strikingly low because it's usually over eighty percent or even ninety percent, depending on the poll, of TPP supporters back Ke or DPP supporters back Lai. Now, what I'm interested to see is post this trip whether or not there'll be a boost. Um, within KMT supporters. I think he's going to get some more support, I think, from more centrist uh, supporters uh, from this trip to the United States. Um, But uh, whether or not those voters within the KMT who are suspicious of him now are going to be swayed is really hard to say. There's a certain segment of the KMT whose families, uh, you know, the 49ers who fled uh, the, the Civil War, the Chinese Civil War in 1949, uh, they, you know, they're, they're, them and their descendants are, are suspicious of Ho uh, because he 
his family has been in Taiwan for hundreds of years. And there's some other distinct uh, niches within the KMT, particularly very pro uh, relations with China, that I think are quite suspicious of Ho. And so this sort of, again, this a bit of Ma, a bit of 90s KM, KMT, I, I'm, I'm not, it looks like he's trying to pivot a little bit more to the center. Um, so I, I don't know how well this is going to go down with the Deep Blues, but it's also worth keeping in mind that a big chunk of the Deep Blues are also the Huang Fuxing, which are the military veterans organization, and they're very powerful within the KMT, and the strong talk of defense may appeal to them, and their, their influence may spread to other Deep Blues. So I think his appeal is complicated, and how it's going to play out, I'll be very interested to watch in the pollings, uh, polling over the next week and week and a half. And I've got some polls here. In fact, if I grab my quick, I'll grab my quick polls here. Now, apparently, we've got polls from who we got. Oh, we got the, a poll by online media outlet C News has Lai Ching Dur at 28%, followed by Kerwin Dur at 22.6%, Ho Yoe on 16.3%, and Terry Guo at 13.7%. Mm. And, and yeah, and I wait for it. I've got more polls. I've got lots of polls here, Michael. Hang on a minute. Um, actually, I, I, I've done a poll of polls covering the last 15 days. Oh, there um, we go. Weighted to the more quality ones and the less quality ones. Are are down down weighted, um, but this has a, a Lai Chingda at thirty four point zero two percent, Kuwen at twenty point one one, Ho Yoe at nineteen point seven seven, and Terry Terry Go at eleven point two seven. So that I think might sort of aggregate that that for you. Michael, what do you think of these polls? Too early to say, really, because of course polls here are. Well, depending on the pollster's political bent, they go either way. Well, they do. I think that's why Donovan is doing this poll of polls to try to to try to wait that out. I, I you know, I, I think all of the polls show the same basic structure. Uh, I suspect that Terry goes. Uh, poll numbers are up a little bit at the moment because he's gotten a lot of publicity with his VP and the, beginning the, the the campaign to uh, get signatures and that sort of thing. But the, the basic structure is, is, is there. All I can say is at the moment, things are about as good as they could be for William Lai and the DPP. You've got uh, America and... Uh, um, and uh, Ho Yoe duking it out at about 20 percent, uh, 20, 22 percent. Neither of them are really close. And you've got Go, who's probably taking votes away from uh, Ke, who's the strongest second candidate. Here's something that's interesting is uh, you're right. Terry Go initially was taking more votes from Ke when you compare it the four way to the three way race. But actually, I noticed in a, in a few polls uh, just recently that he started he started to take more votes away from Ho than Ke, which I think was an interesting transition. And of course, we'll have to wait for this because we'll have to wait for another few weeks. And Donovan will do more polls of polls. The poll of the poll, Donovan. We'll leave that up to you anyway, because we have to move on now. And President Tsai Ing-wen this week welcomed a cybersecurity business development mission from the United States. Now, the mission's arrival in Taiwan comes, of course, Michael, as there's concern about cybersecurity and the upcoming elections. Absolutely. I think that uh, we all are... We, we, we know that all kinds of fakes of other kinds of media have swung Taiwan elections in the past. 
uh, I just just one example would be the the tapes that I think Frank Shea's campaign released about uh, Udoni back in the day that uh, that that disclosed an affair that Udoni was supposedly having and may have tipped the election for Frank Shea. Uh, in this era of AI, where you can produce these, you know, coherent-sounding documents or photographs, um, it's it's a big concern uh, that there could be these last-minute, you know, in the last 24 hours of the elections that, and if it was close, something like that could tip the election. Uh, so I think that broadly speaking, cybersecurity, uh, a, a cybersecurity attack that brought down the electrical systems uh, could 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 really disturb people and swing the election. So I think there's all kinds of issues to be concerned about. And I think that the current minister of digital affairs, who's uh, Audrey Tong, who's criticized by some as they don't really understand what she's doing. She's a vision person. She's not Taiwan's IT help desk. Uh, and she's very well situated to work with her peers and industry and government uh, on cybersecurity uh, issues. And I think that this is an area that Taiwan and the United States can do some really substantive cooperation in. Taiwan is kind of a lab for the world to see what misinformation can do and what the role of cybersecurity, you know, how much cybersecurity can prevent some of these bad actors from from influencing our democratic processes. Yeah, that, that was um, those were some excellent comments, and I, I really particularly like your uh, example of taking out the power grid, which would, considering the politiza- politicization around the uh, issue of energy and power, if that were to happen right before the election, I think that would be a particularly powerful um, attack. Um, now, there was a report uh, issued by Fortigard Labs, um, and it said in the first half of 2023, there were 15,000 cyber attacks per second uh, launched against Taiwan. There were 224.8 billion uh, cyber attacks in the first half of 2023. Um, and that was up by two thirds over the year before, and um, sorry, it was an eighty percent increase over the same period the year before. Sorry, um, and the cyber attacks targeting Taiwan accounted for fifty-five percent of all total attacks targeting the Asia Pacific region, which I assume would include the United States. So Taiwan is ground zero uh, for cyber attacks. Now, most of these, um, a lot of them are targeting businesses which um, threaten global supply chains because so much trade goes in and out of Taiwan. Um, But because Taiwan is at the forefront of this, Taiwan is basically a lab, and other countries like the United States really could learn from Taiwan on this. Now, as regards to the election, uh, as Michael alluded to, is there, you do have, you know, generative AI, and I wrote a column on this a while back, and a lot of what I talked about has more and more increasingly coming true, is you've got the, the problem of deep fakes, where you could mimic both the look and the voice of a person and get them to say whatever they you want. You can get AI to create these. Um, so the process of creating deep fakes is now much easier, it's much faster, and it can be propagated much 
more efficiently by also using generative AI, which can create much more realistic-looking social media accounts that buttress and spread information among themselves. And, Michael, obviously this is a a clear and present danger, as a book was once called, but, I mean, do you think now is just the early stages of such interfering in elections? It could get worse in maybe the next election, not the coming election in January, but by the next election it could even be worse. Absolutely. Uh, the the ability it's not just that the, the technology is there but people may not have learned to use it as effectively uh, yet uh, although the people are coming up the learning curve really quick and you know it's not just open AI or, or the the various image makers there's all kinds of AI tools out there which are being applied to things that most people haven't even thought about yet it's 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 very disturbing on the other hand, Uh, There are real concerns with uh, free speech. Uh, You know, Taiwan kind of has a history of being a little bit too quick to shut things down based on, you know, oh, something is misinformation. Uh, You know, the the world of politics uh, for hundreds of years has been, um, you know, characterized by anonymous, libelous pamphlets and this kind of thing. Uh, This is not new. Uh, you know, new media and new technologies have gotten involved in politics. And so, you know, I do hope that there's a measured approach taken to these things and that we don't have a chilling of free speech while we're working on the real dangers that are posed by these technologies. And that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Michael Fahey. Take care, Gavin. And in Taichung by Donovan Smith. Ken, thanks for having me again. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And we'll be taking a break for three weeks from next week, but we will return on October the 20th. In the meantime, don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.